For those remaining, please stand for the reading of God's word. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. The flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slains, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Hey, I got a response there. I'll see if I try, I'll try it again later and we'll see what happens, maybe. Uh, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, with these uh, reminders of Christmas around us, uh, with the candles, with the trees, and even more with the songs that we sing, uh, we, we rest in the reality that you have not left us alone, but that you came and became one of us. And that you did not leave us in our own estate, but that you have rescued us. And Lord, we, uh, we cling to the reality that you are continuing to rescue us. That, that we are not yet what we one day will be. That you are continuing to do your work in our hearts and in our lives. And so knowing that, knowing that you're not leaving us alone, we, we pray even now as we look at your word that you would continue to be speaking to us, shaping us, renewing us so that we might be the people who faithfully wait on you and are made more and more like your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about 10 years ago, a man by the name of Michael Martin, who is the owner of a Houston landscaping company, started coming down with some uh, strange symptoms. And so he went to the doctor, and to his dismay, he found out that he was diagnosed with ALS, which, as many of us know, is a degenerative disease where there's no cure. And he was told that he had two years left to live. So he was devastated. 
But he had a friend, and the friend said he had heard about this experimental new process, and he should check it out. And so, of course, desperate, he did exactly that. He went and he talked to the person, and the person said, yes, we can probably do something for you, but insurance isn't going to cover it, so it's going to cost you a lot. And Michael was so wanting some sort of hope that he was willing to give essentially his life savings. Now, my guess is you probably know where this story is going. This was a con. And in fact, it was such a big con that 60 Minutes ended up covering it. And by the time 60 Minutes came to this man who had lost everything, he couldn't speak anymore, he could barely walk, and he had nothing left. His hopes were so focused on something that ultimately was called by 60 Minutes the 21st century version of snake oil. And he was devastated, of course. There's something just incredibly cruel about false hopes. But yet at the same time, hope is, is crucial. Hope is a powerful thing. Hope is what moves us forward. Some of you might know that a little more than a week ago, uh, Matt Potoshnik and I ran a half marathon. The first time I ever did something like this. And I wasn't quick. But for about the first 10 miles or so, I was doing okay. And then I feel like internally, you know how like when you're driving and you see the low fuel light, that that just suddenly kind of went on inside my head. And the last three miles, slowly, I was just kind of more and more going into slow motion. And by the end of the 12th mile, like my hands were tingling. Apparently my face was completely bereft of color. I, I couldn't think straight. And, and there were so many times I was thinking, okay, I can just walk, I can just walk. And there were two things that kept me from, from actually stopping. One was just the awareness that some of the people knew that I was doing this, and I didn't want to tell them that I walked the last mile. But the other thing was, there was a finish line, and I actually knew where the finish line was. And I just kept on reminding myself that just a little bit further, and I'll be able to stop and have the chicken noodle soup, and it's going to feel so much better. It was just the hope. Hope really was the only fuel that I had left. And hope is what drove me to the end. And that's the way that hope works, right? That thing that's before us, that keeps us going, even when we feel like we've got nothing left. It is an incredibly important and powerful thing to hope in what is a true hope. Not false hope, but to have hope in a true hope. I mean, that's really what Advent is about, isn't it? We've been talking about waiting, and what we're talking about is hope that there's something before us that is true, that is real, and that is worth waiting for. And this theme of hoping in a true hope is really where our passage takes us also this morning. If you've been with us since September, we have been working through the entire Old Testament, trying to really focus on what is the great story of the Bible, the story of God's mission in this world. And we're nearing an end, and we've come to that strange part of the Bible that we don't read that often, the prophets. And we come here to Ezekiel, who was, if you ever read all of Ezekiel, it's about as trippy a book in the Bible as you will find, maybe other than Revelation. There's a lot that's interesting. And here's one of those places where we have this vision. The first ten verses are the vision, and then the last few verses are, are God's explanation of what this vision has. And really what I want us to see is three things. We see in this vision that we are hopeless. But we also see in this vision that there is a hope beyond our hopelessness. And finally, we see that that hope is incredibly powerful. First, we see that we are hopeless. 
This vision is perhaps familiar to some of you. It's that song, you know, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. I won't sing it for you because you wouldn't want me to. But you know it. If you know that song, that's what this song is about. We, we see Ezekiel brought into this valley, and it says everywhere is just covered with bones. God, God takes him around, and every, I mean, that, that means when he's walking. This is a very large area, and I think we're not supposed to imagine just a few here and there scattered, but layers upon layers of of skulls and ribs and hip bones and every other human bone. It is, it is a grotesque scene. And we don't know what happened, but we know that, that these people, whoever they were, were decimated, and so much so that we're told that, that when Ezekiel touches it, it's like chalk, it's dry. That is, there's not even a hint of life that is left in these bones. There's not even a memory of the life it used to have. This is complete and utter death. And so what we have here as we begin is a picture of, in relationship to the people these bones represent, complete hopelessness. I mean, that's what death ultimately represents, right? And I'm speaking, of course, within the constraints of this world, humanly speaking, death is the end. Death is not something you recover from. You can't bounce back. You cannot fix it. Death is the final chapter. It's the conclusion. Humanly speaking, there is nothing beyond death. It is the symbol of hopelessness, which is why it can be so hard for us, because we know that in this world, someone who dies, we will not see again. It's a picture of hopelessness. And the bones, we are told, represent a very specific people. It says, verse 11, Son of man, these bones, and remember 11 through 14 is the interpretation of the vision, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And these bones are saying, and Israel is saying, our bones are dried up. So Israel itself is saying, we recognize that we are dry bones, that we have no life, that we are dead. The whole house of Israel. So we're talking about 10 tribes that were utterly decimated over a century ago by Assyria, scattered to the world. They're dead. There's there's no trace of them left over. We're talking about the two tribes that you might remember from last week were sent into exile into Babylon. For a while, they were holding on to some hope that maybe they would return. But just before this vision, they heard news. And that news was that their city that they were hoping to go back to has been utterly destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem taken down, the buildings burnt in cinders, and their temple, the temple of the God, utterly leveled with nothing left. And so they know their story. As a nation, they are dead, they are hopeless. They're dry bones. And their hopelessness goes even deeper than just this awareness that they don't have a home to return to. Notice, and they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And that that last line, which is the conclusion, they're saying, we are cut off from what? They're saying we're cut off from God. See, they understand rightly that their fate is completely their fault. 
that this, this death of their nation is because they have failed, because they have sinned and they were warned again and again, you need to repent, you need to change, and again and again they ignored it. And now they are experiencing the consequences and they know they are experiencing God's anger. And it is their failure where they're experiencing they are cut off from God. And that means they are hopeless. That means they are dry bones. Bones have no ability to change their situation. That's them. Now, it's important when we get to this moment of this scene and we're seeing the story of Israel that we should realize that this is not just about Israel. That when we're reading the story of Israel, and this is true actually throughout the Old Testament, we're reading the story of humanity, the story of us. Why do I say that? Well, let me take you back to the very beginning of our series when we were looking at Abraham. If you, if you remember dimly, when God makes this promise to Abraham, you know, he promises that I'm going to rescue the world. I'm going to bring them back so that they can be my people in my place under my rule. And I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to do it through your descendants. The people of Israel are going to be my vehicle for bringing redemption. They will be my faithful people. And as they experience my grace and as they are changed, they can spread it to the world and all of humanity will be saved. In other words, Israel is humanity's best shot. Think for a moment, if you wanted to design a situation where a group of people would be set up to succeed as God's faithful people, what would you want to have done for them? Well, you'd want them to be utterly convinced that God is real and God is faithful and God is committed to them. Check, we've got Exodus, when God redeems his people from Egypt, brings them out of slavery in remarkable ways. He's done that. You also want to make sure that this people are given plenty of instructions. If this is what it means to be faithful, this is how to follow God, check, we've got Mount Sinai. God does that as well for Israel. Well, you want them to be convinced of the generosity of God, of how loving and caring he is. We brought them into, God brought them into Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. Check. Well, you'd want to make sure that they have reminders again and again that God is present. Miracles, prophets, protection from the enemies. Again and again, God does that. Check. God does everything. I mean, what possibly more could God do to ensure that this people, humanity's best shot, would remain faithful? He does everything. And yet here we see the outcome of their Trajectory, what ends up happening to them? They fail utterly. They are dry bones. They are hopeless. Why? Because sin is just too great. The power of sin is too great in them, and sin brings about death, and that's where they are. And what that tells us is that's where we are. Because let me ask you this, do you think if you were in Israel's shoes, you would do any better than they would? It's naive to believe that we would. Israel's failure, Israel was humanity's best shot. If they failed, that means we would fail as well. If they are hopeless, if sin is too great for them, that means sin is too great for us. That means we also can't fix our problem. We also are dry bones. Now, I realize this is a terribly un-American thing to say. 
If there's one thing that characterizes our country, even now in a year that is largely pessimistic, it is that we have a can-do attitude. We're the ones who write the self-help books and we read them so we can fix our lives. We're the ones who have movies that almost always end in a happy ending so that we can feel optimistic about things. I mean, to quote the great Vanilla Ice, Yo, if there was a problem, yo, I'd solve it, right? That's our American motto. There's a problem, I can fix it. There's a problem, I can fix it. That's what we believe. But here's the problem. Sin is not something that we can solve. I mean, we have tried. Think of all the things we do to try to fix the problems that most deeply ail us. We have spent more than probably ever before on education, on, on therapy, on, on drugs for mental health, all of which are good things. But, but suicide rates continue to escalate. Families continue to be disintegrating, and our nation cannot hold together. Why? Because sin is a problem that we cannot solve. Or personally, think of how each individual is, is seeking to live fully and to, to be happy, and we have more wealth than any person even a century ago could have imagined. Our standard of living is remarkable. Now, for a few hundred dollars, you can get a 4K UHD HDR 65-inch TV. You can get the internet, all of the information, just in the palm of your hand. You are able to travel wherever you want in the world. This is unimaginable 50 years ago. And yet, do you think we are any happier than we were 50 years ago? Sin is a problem that is too great for us to solve. Or think about death. Death is the outcome of sin. It's where sin takes things. We are medically further along than we ever have been before. And yet, do you know of anyone who believes that the great statistic, 10 out of 10 people die, do you know of anyone who says we're going to be able to solve that anytime soon? No. Because sin is too great of a problem for us to be able to solve. And anyone who says otherwise who offers some sort of solution within our human abilities is just selling snake oil. See, when it comes to the greatest problem that we have, the problem of sin, we, like Israel, are dry bones. We don't have the ability within us to solve it. We, humanly speaking, are hopeless. But that is not the main point of our passage. It's, it's here, but there's something much more significant that our passage has to tell us, and that is that there is a hope that lies beyond our hopelessness. God asks, God asks Ezekiel a, a, a rather strange question. He asks, can these bones live? Now, this really feels like a trick question, and I think if we were there, we would feel like we know the answer. I mean, occasionally you hear of, like, a little kid after Thanksgiving taking a turkey bone and planting it in the ground and hoping, you know, like a turkey will spring up. But most of us know that that's not what happens with bones, that when something becomes a bone, especially a dry bone, there is no future for it. But Ezekiel, I mean, I've told you, his whole book is pretty out there. So he has experienced enough to know that he doesn't know everything. And so he actually makes a really smart response. He just kind of dodges the question, God, you know. And so then God tells him to do something really strange. Preach to the bones. 
I mean, that's what we have in verse 4. Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine Ezekiel in this moment? I mean, he's had a lot of strange things that he's supposed to do, but for him to, at this point, just kind of kneel down and and just start talking, um, bones, I want you to pay attention. Hear God's word. But what he has to say next, what God tells him to say, signals to us this theme that I've said, that there is a hope that is beyond our hopelessness. Verse 5, this is what the Lord God says to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. In other words, God is saying, I know, Bones, that you are hopeless. I know that you don't believe there's any future for you, but you have forgotten one thing, that I am God, and I'm the one who has the ability to give life. And because I'm the one who gives resurrection power, you will live. And it's not just living as in having a pulse or breathing. We're talking about life in its fullness. When you combine what it says in the next couple of verses with it also how it's interpreted in the final verses of our passage, it describes not just a coming together of the body, although that's part of it. What is disintegrated will be reintegrated. What is broken apart will be made whole. But even more than that, he speaks of the breath coming in. And that word breath is the same word for wind and it's the same word for spirit. And by the time we get to verse 14, we see that's what it's talking about, that God says, I will put my spirit in these dead bones, my very power, my passion. I will give people the ability to love again, to be righteous again, and the result will be they will know that I am the Lord. They will no longer be cut off from me. They will no longer be dead. They will be alive in every way. They will be whole. They will complete. That is the promise that God has, that they will be wonderfully alive. And so here we have in this passage an important new piece in the story of redemption. You know, we have been saying, as I said from the very beginning, that that the story of the Old Testament is how God is bringing his people back to Eden. After we have lost it through sin, God says, I will bring you back. You will once again be my people in my place under my rule. And this whole story we've been chasing is how God is fulfilling this promise. And last week we saw that one piece of this is that there needs to be judgment. That the exile signals the fact that the sin that plagues humanity is so great that it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be destroyed. There needs to be a death. But here we see the next part of that story. That beyond that death, there will be life. Beyond judgment, there is grace. Beyond the hopelessness of our own condition, there is a hope and the God of resurrection power. I've heard it said that God is the God of the 11th hour. Have you ever heard that? And the, the point is that sometimes we see in scripture and we've certainly experienced in our own lives that there are times where we are in desperation and we're crying out to God and it seems for whatever reason that God waits until just the last moment And then he steps in and he fulfills prayer and he cares for our need. That's what we see in the Old Testament, right? When God's people are up against the Red Sea and the the Egyptians are charging after them and they're terrified and then boom, the waters open and they are delivered. It's the 11th hour. 
And that's true, but he's not just the God of the 11th hour. Sometimes he's the God of the 13th hour. That is, even when it's too late, even when everything we are afraid of has happened, even when death has taken place, beyond that, beyond the 11th, beyond the 12th, even still God can step in. And he can step in in the 13th hour with his power of resurrection. That's what he's promising here. It's the 13th hour, but you do not need to be hopeless because there is hope beyond hopelessness. Now, what is he promising here? Well, I have no doubt that the people who originally heard this were thinking that what God was speaking about is how the dead nation of Israel would be brought back, how, how God's people would be brought back from exile and brought back to the promised land. And that is what happens. A few decades later, we see, surprisingly, wonderfully, God's people brought back into Canaan. But I want to suggest that what is promised here goes deeper and is bigger than just a return from exile. Because the death that's being described is more than just being away from home. It's, it's deeper. It's the judgment of God. And so also the resurrection that's being described is bigger than just a return. It's talking about life in its fullness. Really, this promise is not truly and completely fulfilled until six centuries later. Until Jesus, the one who is the perfect Israelite, the one who comes to represent all of Israel and really all of humanity, takes our sin upon himself and he goes to the cross and carrying our sin carries our judgment and dies our death. I wonder if when, when Joseph of Arimathea takes Jesus' body down from the cross and carries it to the tomb, if he himself cries out in his heart, can these bones live? And we know the answer. That in just three days, God floods Jesus with his resurrection power and says, live. And in that moment, something altogether new, a new creation is begun through Christ Jesus. And as he stands in victory and resurrection power, he declares to all that all who trust in him can share in this resurrection power, that all who look to him can find the hope that is beyond their hopelessness, can find the life that is beyond death. Let me ask you, do you... Do you no, do you see the reality of the hope that is beyond our hopelessness? You know, we are in, an, in a day where there's a lot of despair. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of frustration. And looking at things humanly, that is entirely justified. We are looking at a nation of dry bones. What hope is there? But if we can look at it through a different lens, if we can look through the lens of God's promise, then we see something altogether different. Yes, we cannot fix this on our own, but there is something else that is going on. There is a greater power. There is a new creation at work. Even in this life of death, there is hope. All things are being made new through Christ Jesus because our God is the God of the 13th hour and he is redeeming his people. And when we can see that, when that lens shapes the way we see the world, that is a powerful thing. And that brings us to the third thing I want us to see in this passage, just really quickly. 
that this hope that lies beyond our hopelessness is powerful. Returning back to the vision one more time, God you know, has told Ezekiel, preach to the bones, and Ezekiel does that. And an amazing thing happens when he does. It says he hears this noise, and suddenly there's this clattering of bones as bones from all over come flying together and coming together and form the shape of bodies. And then it doesn't stop there. Then there, it says there's sinews, organs, brain, skin. Everything suddenly is there, and, and, and then it pauses because now you have a whole bunch of dead bodies everywhere, and God says, keep preaching. So he's preaching and he calls on the breath, he calls on the wind, and the spirit fills each individual and they are brought to life and they stand and it says there is an army, there is a a newly alive group of people ready to return to the promised land. What we have here is a picture of what God is promising to do. To bring life where there is death. And there's a lot we could say about this image, but I just want to focus on one thing. Notice how this happens. Ezekiel does not put his hand on some powerful object and then just kind of like uses the force. He doesn't have this incantation where he just repeats things again and again, these magic words that cause this to happen. Well, what does he do? All he does is he preaches the gospel. Right? All he is saying is this is what God promises, resurrection power. He is declaring the promises of God. And as he does this, and I'm sure he felt feeble and weak in doing so, as he does this, things that were utterly dead come to life. Do you realize the power of the word of God? The power of the gospel? I wonder if Paul was reflecting on this passage when in Romans he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. These words, just speaking these words was enough to bring life out of death because it's the word of God. It's the word of promise. Now that means a couple really important things for us. First, that means that that this is the answer for the death that lies within us. The cure for our death is God's word of life. Our dry bones are transformed when we truly hear the promises of God. If you are a Christian, at one point the Bible says, you were dead. That's the way the New Testament speaks of us being dry bones. You were dead in your transgressions. But at some point, someone told you or you read the promises of God. Maybe you are two years old, and in that moment, that death within you was reversed. Your, your soul was kind of knit together. Your ability to hear your, was, was renewed. Your eyes were opened. And that word declaring the gospel, declaring forgiveness, declaring God's promises, made you alive. That's true for every believer. And the promise doesn't stop then, because all of us who know Christ are this combination of being both dead and alive at the same time. Sin is still at work in us, even as the Spirit is at work in us. And you know what that means? That means we need that life-giving power of the promises of God again and again and again. Because it's as we hear that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that God is renewing you, that his Spirit is in you, that you are becoming the person he has created you to be. As you are hearing these promises, those things are happening inside of you.
because that's where power is found. That's why every week we, we confess and we hear the gospel. That's why we need baptism and we need the Lord's Supper because these are reminding us of the promises. That's why when we're hearing God's word, we again and again come back to this because that's where power is found. There is power in the gospel of the promises of God. Now this means one other thing for us, at least one other thing that we should consider. That means you and I have been entrusted with the only power that is able to deal with what this world needs. That means we need to take really seriously our mission to speak these words to the world around us. Now I know all the concerns people have about evangelism, even that word we try to avoid because it causes people to break out in hives, right? And I know the concerns, and a lot of them are legitimate. We don't want to be like a Mary Kay salesman who's just trying to peddle things and trying to, to use people as marks for our own well-being. And we don't want to do things prayerlessly. We don't want to just kind of shove things down people's throat. All of that is true. And we absolutely need to make sure that we are prayerful and that we're sensitive and that we're listening to people as we're seeking to speak to them. But let me say there is one really terrible reason for us not speaking to other people. And that is the belief that the words that we say cannot possibly make a difference. Let me just remind you of something. Ezekiel preached to dry bones, and they became alive. We have a powerful gospel and a calling to speak it and to see what God will do through it. But for now, we have the opportunity to ourselves experience that gospel. As we turn to the table, this table is here to reassure us, to deepen our understanding of God's promises and his commitments to us. And so as we turn to it, it is right for us to prepare our hearts by first acknowledging our own helplessness and hopelessness through a confession, before then taking hold of the hope that lies beyond the hopelessness in the Lord's Supper. So I invite you, please, to, to join with me in this confession. You'll see a confession of sin printed, and what we'll do is we'll do this together wherever the print is bold, and there will be a, a moment for us to confess our sins silently as we prepare our hearts for the table. So would you please join with me in this prayer? Friends, let us confess our sins to God. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone what we ought to have done. And we have done what we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. Yet, good Lord, have mercy on us. Restore us as we repent. 
according to your promises, declare to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And grant, merciful Father, for his sake, that we may live a godly, righteous, and obedient life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel from Ezekiel 37. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. Friends, Jesus died and rose again for you, so that you who turn to him and repent of your sins will have eternal life. Believe the gospel. Thanks be to God.